Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech pathologist. Hi, Laura. I'm Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist. How are you tonight? I'm really good. How about you? I'm doing just fine. Good. Pretty good for a Sunday evening. I yeah. know. Did you get your? Did you uh, have a good time with your guests? You had big weekend plans. I had a very nice weekend. My niece came with her. Um, Six-week-old baby. Oh, yes, she was very sweet and cute. It's been a while since I was around one quite that little. Yeah, she, um, she had a, well. She had her her worst night ever at my house. Thank oh, you very, no. very much. <laughs> Friday night she was fussy. I mean, I didn't think it was that Aww. bad because my kids were pretty fussy when they were that age, especially at night. Yeah. But according mm-hmm. to um, my niece, she was kind of like in shock that she was that fussy. But Aww. then, uh, oh, but it's okay. And then the next day, she she was so much better, and um, she took a passy for the first time really here. Oh, uh, yeah. But the cutest was on Sunday morning. Now she was just Friday. She was six weeks. So yeah. Uh, this morning. My niece Ellie decided that she would coo and she would smile oh. and it's a here for the I mean Megan kinda of, my niece Megan said, Well, I think she might have kinda of smiled. You know how the first few yeah. times you're not sure because it might be gas and it might be right. a smile. <laughs> but this was Reflective. like I, Yes, yes, yeah. this was obviously a smile where she was, you know, her Aww. eyes were twinkling and she was lighting Aww. up and she was smiling and she was cooing. and So we had the best and the worst while she was here. And luckily it started with the worst and went to the best. So it was Aww. a very nice yeah. Isn't it great to see typical development, too, to really oh, yeah. see that unfold right before your eyes. That always feels yeah. like a miracle to me when that happens. Oh, that's so great. Well, Five hours away, so I don't know what she'll be doing the next time I see her, but I'm sure it will be big because I don't get to yeah. see her that often. But it was very special to have her here, and it, it went well, except for that first crying evening. Megan kept saying, I'm really sorry. She's usually not this bad. And I was like, this is the way my babies were every night. <laughs> One out of three of my babies were like that, and thankfully the oh. first and the third weren't, but Tyler was pretty fussy. He was colicky, so I remember that mm-hmm. well. That was the bewitching hour. or Well, it wasn't an hour. It's about four hours. Bewitching evening is what, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And mine really pretty much both had one a little worse than the other, but they both were pretty fussy at night. I mean, was yeah. constant trying to calm them, what can I do, what can I do, and and that's her first night, you know, it it was either bad or really bad. You know, it's just like nothing yeah. really worked. And, and right. she, you know, Megan was kind of stressed about it. She, it's her third child, but she said her first two boys were, they never really were fussy. I was like, really? You know. <laughs> anyway, so it was a great visit. And Aww. it worked out well. And it, it went, it was very nice and special to have them here. So, yeah. Well, I'm glad you had such a fun weekend. Yeah, it was good. I and had it a really did good reinforce time. the idea that I'm too old to have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> like that was really on your mind anyway, so there you go. At dinner, at dinner <laughs> the lady next to us was saying, oh, how old is she? Nah, nah, nah. 
And then something, I can't remember what else she said, but it implied that she thought she was mine, which I took as a compliment because Lord knows I am too old to have a newborn baby. But I, I said, oh, she's not mine. She's hers. <laughs> I had her on my shoulder and she thought she was mine. So anyway, yeah, they're a lot of work, those newborns, but she was I very know. cute. So what were you saying and about we had our ba- I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. I was going to say, we had our babies early. We both had babies in our 20s. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's been a while ago since we had newborns in our homes. Right. Yeah, I'm glad it was good. I was just going to say that I had a great time on Thursday seeing Nancy Kaufman. I mentioned that, <clears throat> excuse me, on last week's show. It was a lot of fun. And the best thing, and again, you know, I've heard her. This was my fourth time to hear her because I like her so much. And you know how crazy I am about treating apraxia and it was so nice to hear kind of how her presentation has evolved and I got to tell her that and that was kind of nice and you know that little shared moment but we sat beside her at lunch and she is so nice because she usually has parents who attend her conferences too and there were several parents there and they had lunch with her and you know she offers to do that during you know at the beginning of the day if there's any parent who wants to have lunch with me i'd be happy to have lunch with you and answer questions about your child and so we were very unintentionally beside her for you know our table was there for lunch and so i got to hear again kind of that unintentional eavesdropping that happens when you're in close proximity to a big table And a mom was asking her some questions about her child. She said the speech pathologist felt that apraxia, the the child was apraxic, and so Nancy was asking her some questions about the child's just total development. And then she said, and this was, again, music to my ears, when she said, well, it sounds like based on what you're saying about your child, you really shouldn't be targeting um, sound production or worried about worrying about expressive stuff yet because it sounds like your child really needs help with receptive skills and any kid that needs help with the receptive skills I always back up a step further and always ask how is his or her social interaction so you know again that's the song I sing every day of my life so it was good to hear someone else who is known for something else talk about that and really talked to a mom about that. And again, when I talked, when I got to speak with her at lunch, and again, and, or right after lunch, and it was just for a few minutes. And I, she was asking me, you know, where my practice was and what I do. And so I got to tell her, and I said, so I feel like I do a lot of the pre-Nancy Kaufman stuff, making sure that we're covering our bases with receptive language and with social skills. And and so that was again a real treat to get to talk to her about that. And hear someone else say that who again specializes in something else that um, she's acknowledging how important that is as a prerequisite that children understand language. And she really has added, and I don't ever remember her saying this before, is that unless a child is vocally imitative, they are not ready for her Kaufman speech-to-language protocol. And she said if you don't have children who are vocal imitators yet, and if they aren't able to sit and attend and engage with you for, you know, a 30-minute session or 30-minute time, that, um, you know, and again, she's fine when she plays with kids, but they're at a table, and she, but she says all those things are prerequisites for her program and that she hates to get a tape from a family, you know, because families can send her videotapes and 
decide if they need to come see her or not. She says, and she'll hear the children just, <laughs> or see children who are developmentally not ready for the kind of work that she recommends for children who are um, diagnosed with apraxia. You know, she sees, and she doesn't see those kids yet. She, her message to those speech pathologists would be, the, the message would be, you need to work on these skills first. They're not there yet developmentally. And so, and again, I've never heard her say that before. Maybe she said it before and it just wasn't as important to me as it is now. So it was great to hear. Um, and I had a great, great day. It was a lot of fun. Got to see some Louisville therapists. That's always fun to see people who do your same job. And um, So it was, it was just a great day. Well, I know you have respected and admired her for a long time. But it is true. I mean, that prerequisite stuff you know, pretty much what she's saying is, as great as her approach is, it probably wouldn't work for kids under three, certainly not. I've had kids, many kids that I suspected were apraxic, and I thought he or she may be a candidate at some point for that. You know what I mean? Because we're right, still yeah. doing that prerequisite stuff. We're still, or right. they're really not imitating, or maybe by the time they're imitating, they're really pretty much three. So Right. You know, and I think that you could use it with two-year-olds, but again, yeah, it would be a two-year-old who that apraxia is their only issue, not a child right. that apraxia is part of their big part developmental. The right. Yeah, and it can certainly be both. And we certainly know that there are children with receptive language issues who who do have motor planning problems as well. We're not saying that, but it was certainly nice to hear her say that you need to get some other things in place. That this wasn't all that you know the end all be all. That there had to be some. Some prerequisites there, and so, again, right. just, just nice for her to say. So that was a great day. I also want to mention my upcoming conference in Lexington on December 2nd, and if any Kentucky people are thinking, I'm going to hear Laura at Kisha, I, it's okay if I don't go to that in Lexington. I've had some scheduling conflicts with Kisha, and I'm not going to be able to speak there this year since we could not get that resolved on Friday, to my satisfaction. So... um the December conference in Lexington is it. <laughs> so register. That's all I have scheduled for 2011-2012, and I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be doing this same conference in Kentucky anymore. So last call, last last shot for that. So you can find out registration information at teachmetotalk.com, and there's also a blurb about that on teachmetotalk.com's Facebook page. So you can click on that link if that would be easier. I also wanted to share a couple more things that are on the Facebook page from last week. First of all, I put the link that I used as the reference for last week's show on there uh, from autism.com that listed those uh, categories of self-stimulatory behaviors. Right. And someone had emailed me about that and asked for that reference, so that's on there now. And then... Um, there was also a link that I posted to Brain Insights blog that I mentioned from time to time, and she, her, her Twitter post for I think it was last Monday or Tuesday was that brains of infants and toddlers are too immature to be taught to read, and so she had a big thing about that program that we're not going to mention that parents ask us about all the time, my baby can <laughs> <laughs> fill in the blank. <laughs> 
And so there's a link about that. And, and my comment to that when I reposted it was, okay, if that's the case for typically developing children, that their brains are too immature, how much more so is it for our little friends with developmental delays and, and known developmental issues? You know, how much... Even more with that information about neurological immaturity apply to them. So there's a link on there if you haven't taken a look at that. Um, and that interests you, please know that that's on teachmeetalk.com's Facebook page. And then yesterday I found the cutest little activity that I posted on the Facebook page that's for a felt Christmas tree that you can cut out and then cut out uh, felt objects that stick. And, you know, felt on felt is pretty easy to stick. It's, it's, you know, maybe not long term, but, you know, for an hour for a therapy visit. And some ideas about what you could do uh, to spice up those therapy sessions in the upcoming weeks for the holiday season. And I think after we finish the social skills series, if we ever do before Christmas, (laughs) that we'll (laughs) talk about some of those holiday uh, therapy ideas. So that's coming up, and I, I just um, I thought that post was really too cute not to pass along. And it's early enough, so even the most disorganized therapist would have time if she wanted to to put together a really cute little Christmas activity for uh, home visits, or even for kids coming to see you in a clinic. I guess that would be even better because the tree would be stationary. And you, but you know, I'm always thinking about home visits and. Would this activity really be practical to drag, you know, from house to house to house? And this one, I think, is is really cute. So I wanted to mention that. All right. Tonight's show, we are picking up where we left off last week. And remember, I just mentioned that last week's show, this is part three in a series. So if you missed the first two shows, you might want to go back and listen to show number 134 and 135 before you hear this show. And we are continuing to talk about self-stimulatory behaviors as a part of our overall discussion of the social skills that children need before they're really developmentally ready to learn language. And again, that would be to learn how to understand language and use language. Because that first piece, that interaction piece, that engagement, that wanting to be with other people, Uh, Some of our guys that we see in early intervention don't have that, and they don't consistently exhibit the social skills that we know need to be in place before they're really um, able to attend to other people long enough to learn what words mean and then how to say those words. So we're talking about social skills in that context. And last week when we were closing the show, we had talked about the various um, categories that we see with children who have self-stimulatory behaviors or stereotypic behaviors, and they fell into some big categories that also um, can be categorized by our senses or our sensory processing systems, and that would be our visual system, our auditory system, our tactile system, vestibular system, taste, and smell. And so when we were closing the show, we said that this week we would begin the show by talking about if a child is exhibiting self-stimulatory behaviors in, in those areas, what's a way that we could use some activities or what are some things that we know that we would try based on our previous successes with children that would make them more likely to engage with us. And remember the reason that we're talking about that is some therapists and some professionals and uh, some parents are almost scared to um, trigger us 
a self-stimulatory behavior or use an activity that they think might trigger that because, you know, they're afraid or they feel uncomfortable or they feel like, gosh, that's not something that I want to intentionally um, cause to happen. However, with some children, you almost have to use what really um, floats their boat, for lack of a better term there, what what you know really causes them to um, engage. And you could use things in this way to, again, elicit more engagement than if you were just fighting to get their attention. So that's where we're starting tonight with quickly reviewing those categories. And then Kate and I, and we talked about some of this last week, but I didn't think we really spent enough time. Mostly we just defined what it was, and we might have mentioned a few things that we might try. So I wanted us to be pretty purposeful about reviewing that list and then talking about some of the therapy activities that we tried. So the first category would be children who exhibit visual um, preferences. And again, we know that there are preferences because that's what elicits those self-stimulatory responses. And so knowing that about a child, we know that, gosh, he really responds to activities that have heightened visual properties. And so for kids like that, I would always think about the toys that I present in being really fun to look at or that there's some kind of visual component that would make them more likely to want to stay and play with me versus me fight to get their attention. So the most obvious ones would be things, toys that have lights, toys that spin, um, those kinds of things. And again, don't be afraid to use those things, especially in those early sessions. But I don't use them right away. I use them when I'm losing a child. Do you do that as well, Kate, when you feel like I do? Yeah. Yeah, and the, yeah, the main, you know, again, the most obvious ones would be those spinning light wands, and I don't take those in with every child, but if I'm having a really hard time with a kid or if I know that that's really all a kid might respond to initially, I'll keep that spinning wand in my bag and pull it out when I'm losing him, say it's 20, 25 minutes into the session and it's getting really hard for him when he's done his best to stay on task and we've done other more traditional play things. And I would bring that out maybe just as a child were running away from me for the fifth or sixth time. You know, when I was really desperate is when I might use uh, that kind of toy. But all through the session, I would look for toys again to give that visual bang um, so that the child will want to play. My favorite things to use for those kinds of kids are that twirly racetrack. The, uh, you know what I'm talking about, Kate? That Fisher Price racetrack. I think you, you have. But do one. I know the official name? No, it's like it's, it's one like you don't the, have to assemble. It's just a freestanding, yeah. circular racetrack, and they've it's been out around for years, and they keep updating. The latest one, I think, yeah. is cars theme. But I have a, yeah, and then they had chickens for a while. <laughs> yeah, Mine is I bought cars. the cars one. Because I thought I lost mine, and then I found it. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I have an older version and then the newer version, which is good. And it does have the sound with it, the rawr, 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 some, and there's not an off switch. So with that toy, and we've talked about that toy a lot on the show, but it's a good one because there's a visual component. It's also a cause and effect toy because the child has to push the lever to watch the cars go down. There's a problem if he only gets the cause part and doesn't get the effect part, meaning that he doesn't give a hoot about the cars. He just wants to push, push, push that lever. So, you know, that also gives you some information information that he's not at the cause and effect level he's just at cause <laughs> and so you've really got to work on the second part of that but that gives you an idea of where you need to play and you know what kinds of toys and at cognitive activities you need to be targeting to um, if a child is really visually um it's easier to get him with visual stuff than it is with other kinds of things. I would even maybe use that Busy Gears toy by Tommy, the T-O-M-Y line. I have one of those. And by that, that that toy is just one that it um, – there's a board, and it's magnetic, and there are – gears that you put on that spin in circles and again they have swirly lines on them so it's very very visually enticing i would not use that for every child but again i've just used it with my kids who are uh, harder to engage and who really seem to like that and respond to that and you use the pieces you know you give the pieces one at a time and add them and by that time you at this time with most children they're not really ready to request yet because they're Developmentally, they're not there yet. You're still working usually on engagement and attention and then staying with you. But you withhold the piece until they reach for it or look at you or do something to indicate that they want another piece uh, to go on. You could model your signs. You could, you could again, model a, a, requ- a verbal request there. But usually children aren't at that level yet um, with that kind of toy. So that's one that I might use. Um, Laura, I bubble. Bubble. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Stick oh, one in there. Oh, the ball. I don't know uh-huh. the official name for me. It's that parent's toy that we've had for years from Target. With you know, has four holes and four balls and a hammer. Mm-hmm. Seems like those visual kids always pretty much like that toy. They like that, and that toy is an mm-hmm. early kind of toy that I think about being like a marble run toy, meaning that the older version of that toy is that you put a marble on like a higher point in the toy and it goes down 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 the ramps of course we're really i'm not fond of balls and things that children can swallow (laughs) especially if they're if we're working on this kind of thing because usually that tells us that developmentally they're functioning at a younger age so this is a great um toy for those kinds of kids that again would like a marble run but you can't use that yet because you're um that's not they're not there yet they could really might be a little bit dangerous with those smaller um smaller marbles but the same kind of concept with the ball falling down so that that's a good one. I use that too. I'd mentioned. I, I think I mentioned bubbles and balloons every single show. Somehow, I always work that in <laughs> with uh, therapy activities for birth to three. And again, both of those activities are so simple. You can do so many things with those. But there's a real visual component with tracking the bubbles or looking, you know, tracking visually tracking the balloons. And you also can get some movement 
as part of that activity so it's not so stationary. And so even if you have a kid that wants to run and needs to move, boy, I've used balloons really successfully with lots and lots of runners. And I think balloons are even easier to use than balls with those kinds of kids. With balls, I'm still always kind of afraid that I might break something if I'm bouncing it or throwing it or using it in that kind of way to entice a kid who's really visually um, that I need to work to get his attention. And I think, gosh, if we were outside, I would just launch that right beside his head as he's running. (laughs) But you can't always do that in a house. So balloons are a way that, an easier way to uh, do that. And you play balloons a lot too, don't you, Kate? You're basically describing, if I go see a child I've never seen before and I've read the evaluation and somewhere in there it, it either point blank says or hints about the child did not attend to many of the activities I presented, he had a short attention span, he was very busy. These are little buzz terms that alert me to to say, okay, I'm going to take my go-to things for kids I don't know that and I well, what I do know is they have an attention problem or they have a short attention or they're hard to engage in play or they did not engage in play with the primary level evaluator, then I take what all these things you're describing. Yeah. And me too. and I always feel like, you know, I may figure out that first session, well really this child may be beyond these things, but they're always they're pretty much surefire winners. If Mm -hmm. if the child's going to engage, even a child who is developmentally able to play at a higher level than these things would dictate, they still are going to hold their attention. And it's pretty easy to work, you know, receptive things into this and expressive things into this, and you Mm -hmm. can get a pretty good idea um, just based on how they do with them and what they do with them and how they respond to what you say to them. And it may be that the next time I maybe take one or two of those things and I'm bumping up the play stuff already. But yeah. You know, you know, you're gonna if you if you can get them with anything, you can get them with these things. So exactly, kind of always my go-to bag. And for some right. kids, it's it's where I stay for a while. If if you know they're still their play is still delayed, or their attention is still relatively short, or you know, if we continue to have some issues even at that level, then I may stay there a while. With other kids, I think, okay, you did great. We're moving on. You know, you didn't really need all that. He liked it, but he didn't really need it. And I know that, you know, I could bump it up some and and still continue to have a a good session. But it's pretty much my go-to stuff because I know if anything's going to work, these are the things that are going to work. Right. What Mm -hmm. I might do for a kid that the next session that I think, okay, those things were great, but he still he can he can play a little bit better than that, but he still really needs to be visually enticed to stay with me. Then I might use that fishing around game that we've both had for a long time. That's a Milton Bradley game, and it's it has a blue circular. Um, part that's the base that it looks like water and there are magnetic fish that quote-unquote swim in the water that move that's a very visually enticing toy but again a lot of kids may not be ready for that at the very beginning that might be something you have to work into some kids are ready for that on day one and really like that and get that and again there's there's a music component so for the next set of uh or the next area that we're going to talk about is auditory. So for those kids who are visual and 
auditory kids who need to hear something and want to stay and play with you. That music is very enticing, so that's a good one. Lucky Ducks is another toy that's very similar to that. I haven't played with my Lucky Ducks in a long, long time, Kate. I think I need to dig that back out. It's a little bit obnoxious with all the quack, 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 quack. But if kids like animals Mm -hmm. and if they like the fishing around game, and we've played that for a few sessions, and I still think they need that visual enticement with that little auditory bump, too, I might rotate and take Lucky Ducks for a session or two, especially if they're a kid who one of their quirks is really looking at, um, again, things that spin, things that go around, or kids that really like colors. Uh, There's a matching component to that game, and again, there is with Fishing Around too. and most of the time we are not going to be ready to do that with a child that we're still really struggling to get an engagement pattern going however every once in a while you'll find a really quirky kid that has those splinter skills who really likes to match and who really notices those things or whose mom has drilled colors over and over and over (laughs) yeah and you can sometimes use it with that or even with an older a kid whose older sibling is there with you during therapy and you're thinking how can i get this brother or sister to be quiet for a minute so we can get something done. Sometimes I'll say to them, you need to match. Here are all the cards. You match all of these, and that gives me a minute to get something else going with the sibling that, that I'm supposed to be there working with. So that would be kind of that next little step up with visual um a visual toy. The other toy that we have talked about before on the show that I don't think we've mentioned in a long time is that My Little Pony Ferris wheel. That oh, is a yeah. really yeah, that's a visual uh toy because the Ferris wheel spins and it also again it would hook into the next category as well with auditory because it has music. And I like this toy a lot because you can make the song really short or you can make it really long. If the kid's gonna leave me, if he's not really getting the music um, if they really like that part, I would let the song go long, but mostly I'm using it on that shorter version. Do you do you use it that way too, Kate? I pretty much try and keep it on the shorter version because I've found that I get bored with the long version and so do the kids. I mean, it's easier to lose yeah. them and they, yeah. you know. So, yeah, the only time I've done the longer is when kids discover the switch and keep switching it themselves. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I try and keep it on the short version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a good one too. And I haven't seen that toy out lately. I don't know if that's still out, but I bet you can find it online. And it has the last little time I seat. saw it was at Big Lots. And it was oh, really? sold with something else and it was pretty cheap. Relative to what we paid full price you know, when we got it yeah. originally. But Well, I've gotten my money's worth out of that toy. I, I hope do. it doesn't I break. Still, yeah. yeah. I use it though all the time. And uh-huh. I don't you I've used a littlest pet shop animals with it. And again, sometimes the kids that you're working with that if at this developmental level may not be really ready to name those those objects, but if they are receptive, or you could work on it receptively and have several things, you know, find the puppy, where's the puppy? And again, you know, modeling lots of exclamatory um, verbalizations because you're going to be doing those animal sounds, you know, woof, 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 or panting or anything like that. So you can work in lots and lots of um, lots of your strategies or lots of your goals or um areas that you're working on with that toy. So it's an all-purpose toy, but it has a big visual 
bang since the, the wheel rotates with the little seats that can hold various characters. I have a hard time getting my bigger characters, my people characters, to stay in there, so I really try to use those smaller things. Is that what you do, too? I do. Yep. I have a big variety of them, and again, for those animal kids or those just really visual kids or those visual and auditory kids, pretty yeah. much just a winner. It might not yeah. keep their engagement. Well, some kids will do it a long time, but pretty much every kid will do it for a while. For a little bit, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's a good one. The other characteristic that was under this uh, category with visual uh, stereotypic behaviors are the kids that flick their fingers in front of their eyes. And for those kids, I really try to, it, and it may not happen the first few sessions, but I try to do a lot of finger plays with those kids. So then I'm thinking if you're going to hold your fingers up, let's at least teach you something higher level to do. And sometimes it's too hard for those kids at the beginning, but a lot of those kids after a while will start to kind of imitate um, some of those things. And I always, it at least is a way for me to try to turn that behavior into something that's more functional. So if I see those little fingers going in front of their eyes, I almost always say, oh, itsy bitsy spider, okay. And we <laughs> sing that. And I try to, you know, really get my fingers right there in their little faces too. And that's a, a strategy that you can give moms. And again, is it 100% effective? Maybe not. But it gives us something to do that feels more therapeutic, and you're going to put a social spin on that finger flicking because you're using it, again, in a more functional way with finger play or a little song with hand motion. So that's certainly something you can do, too. My first therapy manual, Teach Me to Play With You, is full of those. There's a whole chapter on finger plays and songs, and there are several, when I was researching it, I found several new songs that I've since used with those kinds of kids. That There's a song about puppets, and then there's some counting uh, songs that are you can use with using those little fingers, in addition to really traditional things like Itchy Bitsy Spider, and If You're Happy and You Know It, or Open Shut Them, or any of those little songs where those simple hand movements um, would be what you're going to try to incorporate. So if you don't know lots of those songs, then Teach Me to Play With You would be a great resource for that. And again, any any product of mine you can find on the website at teachmetotalk.com, and there are little icons or symbols. Uh, there are boxes with the name of the particular product, and that therapy manual, again, is Teach Me to Play With You. So that would be a good resource if somebody needs that. So that that's what I try to do with those kinds of kids or anything where I can try to turn that finger uh, flicking, is what I always call it, or finger watching into something a little bit more social. And, again, uh, um, we're always looking for a way to to spin language, and, and that's certainly something you can do by introducing those little songs. Okay, any more on visual stuff, Kate, before we move right along? Well, I would feel like a traitor if I didn't mention my all-time favorite toy, which is hard to get. But a mom told me that she just bought it on eBay last week, um, the... Elm, it's a, this cookie monster, I call it Puffalump, it's a nylon cookie monster. 
has a backpack, you feed it cookies. Again, it kind of has the auditory thing that I enhance because I mean, it doesn't talk. <laughs> it's, it's just a, it's like a stuffed animal cookie monster, but it has mm-hmm. a mouth that opens and you stick the cookie in there and then you shake it and it goes into his backpack. And there's a new one out, the, that new cookie monster that's pretty mm-hmm. cute. Um, and I've seen some moms who have purchased it and kids tend to like it. Maybe a little bit harder to make it as social as the other one because the other one right. that I adore, you, I control and I do the nom nom nom, you know, more cookies, yeah, real goofy. And so, but um, that is definitely again, again, very visual. They put the cookie right. in there; it automatically, you know, it disappears, and then we shake it, and then it pops into the backpack. And mm-hmm. just really, I think that's an easy early social um, kind of you know, relational play kind of thing that kids always kind of like to see. Does he get this at all? Does he enjoy this at all? Am I able to get him engaging in eye contact with it at all? Is he, you know, and normally you can get kids who don't do any, or you can get a lot of kids, certainly not all, but a lot of kids who don't do any relational play like that. They are not going to feed the baby Uh doll. They are not going to brush the baby's hair, you know, any of that stuff. And the easy place to start is with that Cookie Monsters thing. But the bad news is... You are so right about that because, I mean, Mm -hmm. kids that I think, I can't believe I'm going to try this, but here we go, and lo and behold, they will do it. And I I don't know why it's a surprise to me. I should be a faster learner than that. And I guess on some (laughs) level I do know it because it's always in my bag, and I do always try it with those kids, but sometimes it really is a shock to me that they will do that play and And it's so great yeah they like it and it always transitions into something else i mean you can do you can you know the first few times they they feed cookie monster you might you know and i'm doing something really simple with just the cookie and i always have maybe a banana and an apple you know the plastic food we've talked about that a lot on recent shows but you can almost always bridge that with let's give Cookie Monster a drink. And since the last time you mentioned uh, this on the show, that you had a hat for Cookie Monster, I've gotten a hat for for Cookie Monster. And then you can, again, really bridge that into all the things that you would do with baby dolls and kids, for some reason, are more much I more likely it, to get that going. I think it might be, and this is total you know, conjecture on my part, it's more visual it, because right. that cookie is going in, literally, right. into the mouth. Oh, I and agree. It, it yep. visually disappears, and dolls, yeah. you just pretend. You know, right. I mean, you stick cookie yeah. there and go, num, num, that's good. So it is TV. more concrete. Yeah, it is, it is more, more concrete. concrete in that way, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that seems to get them. And like you said, once you get a kid doing that for a little while anyway, it's not too hard to bump them up to the plane with the baby. And the, mm-hmm. But I can, you know, those kids who are not interested in baby for two seconds will normally play with Cookie for a good long while. So that's why mm-hmm. I like it. I think it's a real um, nice, easy look at what are his social skills. Is he going to yeah. share this with me visually? Is he right. going to smile at me as I manipulate the Cookie Monster? It tells me a lot about where a kid is socially as to how he responds to that. So that's right. why how he goes to bag. Yeah, and we talked about joint attention, you know, again, and that's what you're mentioning. Is he paying attention to me as he's paying attention to the toy? And so, again, nice, nice way to get that. And I think I interrupted you when you were going to say you can still find that on eBay. Is that what you were going to say? 
Well, a mom told me she bought it last week, so I, you know, I, it comes up periodically, and it's, I don't even know. I would call it a plush cookie monster, right? And with uh, with a backpack, it's right? Not the new one that's out, although that's a cute toy. That's mechanical. I'm not saying it's, yeah, yeah, it's battery operated and it does the voice and everything. It's the same concept. He does eat them, and right. But still, I don't think it's as basic and as easy to use to engage a child socially because I think they would just take the toy and play with it and be done with me. So then I would right. <laughs> then I right. wouldn't like it as much. So right. But yeah, she did just recently find. So yeah, it's, it's a good one, and we've talked about that a lot on the show. So I hope anybody who's been a long time listener has been able to find that. If not. That's certainly a reason to try again to look for that toy. Okay, let's keep going, or we're going to spend the whole hour on this, which I don't know how this always seems to happen week after week. Okay, auditory is the next category with, stere- we talked about last week, the stereotypic behavior with that or self-stimulatory behavior and what kinds of things children would do that if they were auditory um, stimmers, for lack of a better word. And again, I'm not saying this disrespectfully, and I hope no parent, or therapist is offended and thinking that I'm purposefully being non-professional. I'm just trying to use basic everyday language that parents would understand and not fall all over myself trying to use that professional lingo that unless you have a master's degree in some kind of early intervention, you don't understand anyway. So, again, we're talking about kids who, um, things you might see at this level for kids who demonstrated uh Auditory repetitive behaviors would be that they might snap their fingers, they might make vocal sounds. They And, again, I really see children who are totally mesmerized by music or by some kind of, uh, usually it's paired with the visual, some kind of show or some toy that did the same kinds of sound over and over and over again. And for those kids, I always think, okay, you are telling me that if I make my voice novel enough or salient enough or use it in a way that I know that you'll respond, you will respond to me and you will eventually learn to associate this noise that I'm making with this activity that we're doing. And eventually, hopefully, you're going to put that together and learn what uh, to link meaning with this activity. So it gives you lots of information when you see a kid like that. So my go-to number one thing would be music, would be singing to these kids, and it might not even be a real song. It might be singing their name. It might be... Uh, making a, you know making up a little melody as we're playing. It might be using a toy. Excuse me, too much coke before the show. Too much <laughs> coke zero. All the burping. It might be using a toy again with music. I like those music blocks. Kate, what is that toy that we have? That older toy. Remember, you got it for me a long time ago at a consignment shop. It's the Neurosmith toy, and I call it music blocks, but I don't know what it's really called. Hmm. I would probably call it music blocks too. I don't remember. I don't. Yeah, it's made by Neurosmith. It's made by the same company that made our great little linguist. Uh, but again, it's a toy that plays classical music, and there are five blocks, and the blocks have different shapes, and it's um, designed so that if you turn the block on a different side, that it plays another version of the same tune. 
So it's pretty um, enticing for kids who like music and are who at, are at those, again, lower developmental levels maybe because it's an easy toy as far as manipulating the block. I mean, I can see that an older kid or a kid who's developmentally uh, moving along is going to get border, but those kids then a child, you know, bored really easily compared to a child who's still maybe in that 6 to 12-month developmental range. Those That's really the only time I use that toy. Is that the same for you? I have used it a little bit with kids who were, like I had one now six or eight months ago who was really beyond that, but he really, uh, music, he had an unbelievable musical aptitude and interest. Right. And and so for him it was, you know. <laughs> that was he, fun. Yes, yeah. He really got it. Normally I do use it with kids who are a little bit lower functioning, but he was really almost like a, um, you know, a prodigy, a savant when it came to yeah, music. Yeah, yes. he really right. loved and remembered tunes and remembered lyrics and remembered all this stuff. And he he really liked it. But generally, I do use it with kids who are lower functioning. That he was just a real exceptional kid where it came to music, and it was like Ooh, that was that's his gonna, thing. That's, yeah, yeah. it's going to be good for him, and it was. Yeah. So yeah, but generally yeah, and that's, lower. Yeah. And so any toy with music is what I would think about with these kids. But before, you know, again, before we're really even always looking at toys, that that would let me know that I could really sing to get a kid's attention. And and we talk about this all the time too, Kate. Our little, uh, as a parent might say, the weird noises that we make when we're playing with the kid, if we're imitating a toy that has a particularly... Uh, novel noise, and I always think about that shape sorter toy that we have from the parents' line at Target that goes or something like that. <laughs> when you put the shape in, yeah, it's a really yeah. weird noise, and I always yeah. do it along with it and try and make it really social. And usually, it does get them because kids it love does, yeah. the noise it makes. And then when you imitate it, they really like that too. They you know, look right at you, like mm-hmm. what no, kind of noise just came out of your mouth? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so anytime that a to- yeah, a toy might have a a sound that's novel. And, and generally I don't use a lot of like my Fisher Price barn and things. I hardly have the switch on so that the toy is making the noise. I want to do the noise, but for a kid, you know, an animal sound, but for a kid like this at the beginning, I might leave the sound on with a toy like that because I know that that would hook their attention. And would make them, again, uh, less isolated and want to play with me or maybe return to me or stay with me if they're getting to hear that sound. Now, again, am I going to let them sit and push the button for 30 minutes in a row? No, because that would be crossing the line over into perseveration, and we don't want to do that. But if he were leaving me and I knew that he liked that toy or if I knew that I were about to lose his attention, that's when I would bring that toy out. And we might push the button four or five times to really get him again to want to stay with me. And then I could steer it on to something that's more social where I'm included too. But, yeah, you better believe I would use that kind of interest and that kind of toy to get a kid to want to... Uh, stay with me and play longer than if we weren't using a toy that um, stimulated what I know seems to work to hook 
his attention. Uh, and just from a neurological perspective, I always think about um, how effective with some of our our adult patients are that have had strokes that we know that singing, especially our apraxic uh, patients and aphasic patients, that for somehow singing, really, they're able to do that and it grabs their attention and, again, they've retained that skill after they've had a stroke. And so, again, the speech pathologists who are listening to me that will remember their adult training with melodic intonation therapy and how that really, again, can be so successful and so helpful. And lots of our kids are like that. They really respond to that musicality and that the melody. That's why, you know, so many of us really sound... Um, very, very sing-songy when we talk. And Kate, you always tease me about Southern people seem to do that <laughs> a little an, better. Have the advantage. <laughs> <laughs> but there's theory. I mean, there's theory that really backs that up to why that works. So, again, for those kinds of kids, you need to really watch how you talk and really exaggerate your prosody and and use that to your advantage, knowing that they respond to that. So for those kids, you will be more um, sing-songy when you talk. And that's okay because you're really, again, hooking them in and getting them to want to engage with you. And I use that a lot with um, kids who don't seem to respond to a more adult-like intonation pattern. And, yeah, it might be really... Uh, it might grate on a parent's nerves to listen to me talk like that for <laughs> the entire therapy session. But if it works, and if you know that, um, you need to really be using that kind of um, intonation. And again, sometimes therapists will be afraid of that, and, will, and they'll say, gosh, I don't want that kid to sound like that forever. And I will just tell you, he won't. He will not. Now, sometimes children may start to really imitate you in that way, but that will go away over time. And when their language skills get better, you don't talk to them as often in that same tone of voice. But so many of our guys need that to get it going. And I'd much rather have a kid pay attention to me and be with me and use what I know about brain development and, and again, a particular child's sensory preferences. Uh, so that's that would be my reason clinically for really recommending that his parents use that kind of voice with him and that from a therapeutic perspective that he would do a little bit better than if you just used a regular tone of voice. And he's going to hear that regular model all day anyway from other people, but during therapy it might be more effective if you really, really turn it on and do the hi, oh, look, come on, you know, and really use that because I've seen kids really respond to that when they didn't respond to much of anything otherwise. So, And it can be uh, contrived and affected because I, too, can do the sing-songy. <laughs> it may not be as melodic or pretty or quite authentically Southern, but I launch right into it, too, because early on, Laura, I realized, yeah, that's part of the formula. You really have to do it. Um, for a lot of the those kids, it, it just is somehow music to their ears, and it gets their attention and holds their attention better. So, And I think it definitely makes it easier for them to imitate what you're saying. So it's a, right. it's a win on every front. And right. I don't care how northern you may be at heart, like myself, but you better pick it up because... <laughs> It's yeah, and it part really of is, it. again, and it's based on all the research that we know, you know, with mother ease or parent ease, that that 
that babies or kid or you know kids, no matter where they are chronologically, when they are still developmentally in that infancy phase, we know from all the research about that that kids respond um better to that from an attention perspective, meaning that they're listening to you, that you're not just the background noise. They really hone in and focus on that better. And we know that from a speech perspective, that does help many, many children be able to begin to imitate when otherwise they would not. So use it, use it, use it, and it will go away. And don't believe the people that tell you to watch that, especially if you're working in birth to three. Uh, it's, It's something that everyone should do. All right, let's move on to the next category, which would be tactile. And again, let me just pause to say, most of the kids that we see fall into that into that visual or auditory. If you will pay attention to your toys and pay attention to how you're using that in therapy, those are the big categories. The other ones, vestibular might be the next one, the next biggest category. And we're going to talk about tactile first just because that's next on the list. But visual and auditory, again, hearing and seeing are your most salient senses for most of the kids that that who have difficulty engaging um lots of those kids have strengths with especially visual stuff so you want to go with that too and if you compare auditory with it anytime we're using two of our senses at the same time you're engaging different parts of your brain our ot friends could probably explain this a lot better but i'm just going to say anytime you're engaging two different systems a kid is more likely to be with you and learn and remember. So another little bit of theory there, but let's move on to tactile. Um, with those kinds of kids, you, I always think about those kids as doers, that if I don't have them doing something, I am more likely to lose them. So those are those are kids that can't just really sit and listen. These would be kids that are totally... Who, for who flashcards or something that's purely passive for them or reading a book would be just horribly ineffective in keeping their attention. They have to be doing something, and usually early on it may be with their whole bodies, meaning that they are more engaged with you when they're, again, uh, it's a whole body kind of thing, and that those are also the kids that fall into the vestibular category too. But for tactile those kinds of kids, I really am, am wanting them fully participating with their little hands, if that's you know where they are play-wise, if they're to that point that we can do a lot of those kinds of play things where they're, um, they're really, really engaged, because otherwise you lose those kinds of kids. Um, and so any, any kind of toy that we've already talked about uh, until now, cause and effect toys are, of course, where we're going to start with those kinds of kids, because they have to push and pull and learn how to play with toys, and then we bump them on up uh, the developmental ladder until they're playing with things that require a little bit more attention, like your shape sorter toys or blocks that are, they can't just usually be the stacking blocks, although for a tactile kid, if he could stack, that might be enough. But again, you want to pay attention to that system and make sure that you're giving them something to do so that they want to stay with you. Any Any more on that, Kate? Um, well, I'll tell you one thing I've been, just more specifically, is uh, I've been really doing a fair amount of the bean box thing lately, and it does seem that those kids, you know, a lot of tactile kids, yeah. some of them have a lot of 
tactile defensiveness and like you right. think Play-Doh, but they don't like Play-Doh because it's fun, right. so funky. It and they, yeah, squishy. Yeah. 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 You know, that can be a hard sell sometimes, not to say I don't try it, but not right. all, a lot of kids don't really like to touch it. But um, the bean box has sure been, it's kind of something I did for a while and then didn't do and have reinstated the use of it and have had a lot of kids who really, that really gets them. And I try and work in other things into the beans that I know they're mm-hmm. interested in, whether it be animals or vehicles or, you know, mm-hmm. just depending on the kid. But they love that, putting their hands in those beans and feeling them and playing with them. Mm-hmm. And so that's a very tactile thing that I have been using recently to pretty good success. Yeah, and we talked about that on a show. Mm-hmm. If you want to go back and listen to some ideas for making a bean box or those sensory boxes, that was in a show, say, a month ago, and it was we called it uh, Fall Therapy Ideas. So go back and listen to that show. And then uh, on TeachMeTalk.com's Facebook page, there's some cute links for making some pretty creative bean boxes. And you can tie those in with seasons and you know make some pretty cute therapy activities out of there. All right, let's skip on now to vestibule. And again, these would be the kids who need to move. And boy, have we spent a lot of time talking about those kinds of kids on the show uh, in lots of past episodes. But if I know that a kid is a vestibular kid and that he likes to move and needs to move, and again, that's evidenced by his behavior, meaning that he can't sit still, that he always has to run, he's busy, he's on the go, he might be a spinner, like we talked about last week, you know, physically spinning his own little body in circles or even, you know, spinning toys, we would use that and introduce those activities into therapy sessions. I talked last week about those are ring around the rosy kids for me. I introduced that the first day I noticed that they're doing that. Those are also kids that I, with the social game um, that I would introduce would be Up, Down, and that game is in Teach Me to Play With You as well, where I put the kids on my lap or on my knees and say up, 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 up as I'm lifting them in the air, and then I smash them quickly to the floor and say down. And again, you've got the social piece there. You're wanting them to stay with you, and over time you're building that so that the first few times you play it, they might want to play it with you one or two times, but after several sessions, hopefully you're increasing that, and they'll sit through seven or eight repetitions of that really quick game, but you're giving them that movement so they don't have to run away from you to get it. So that's a highly effective social game that you can introduce with those kinds of kids. We talked about last week, uh, didn't we talk about swinging in a blanket with those kinds of kids too, Kate? Yes, I think we did. Yeah, so that would be a fun thing. And to swing in the blanket, you can do it with just a regular blanket on the bed or a piece of lycra. Uh, and I always have mom hold one end. You know, she's going to hold her end with her two hands, and I'm going to hold the other end. And it depends on the kid. If I ha- if I think I'm a little bit better at eliciting a social response, I'll have the kid look at me. But if I think the kid is better with mom, I have the kid face mom. And we it depends on the kid as to what you're going to say when you're swinging. Um, most of the time it's just whee uh, and try to elicit that little exclamatory word as you're Some kids you can sing with uh, whatever song they like. Sometimes I just sing swing, swing or rock, rock. Um, some kids 
you'll do a longer kind of swing thing, and then before you stop them, you'll bounce them on their bottoms or some other version of that. But if you want some ideas for that, that's in Teach Me to Play With You, too. Um, what other kinds of games do you do with those kinds of kids, Kate? Hmm. You've named my big ones. Did you do? Did you talk about Ride a Little Horsey? I'm sorry, I wasn't. wasn't I didn't talk about that one. Yeah, and I thought about that as you know, along with Up and Down, Ride a Little Horsey is a fun game to do, or Row Row Your Boat, where you're putting them on your lap and you are taking their little arms and making them rock with you. For some of those kids, if I think Row Row Your Boat's too much, I might just say Rock, 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 Rock. And again, you can get some really cute ideas uh, for those kinds of things from Teach Me to Play With You. And the best part about those activities are that you are giving them what they need with their little vestibular systems, with that movement, but you've made it social. So that's why those games really work for those kinds of kids. And again, you're doing what's more likely to keep them with you anyway. They may not sit there for anything other than a little movement game or the very best connection that you feel with them might be after you've done these, enough for them to remember the game and like like it, then that's when you really start to see that very genuine eye contact and that really sustained social smile where they're really lighting up. And for some kids that happens with toys, but for a lot of kids the very first time I feel that one-on-one connection is during a game like that. And more often than not it's with those vestibular kids and the reason they light up more during those games and it's more social is, again, because you are doing what they tell you to do. As far as their behavior, you are doing what you, from a sensory perspective and from kind of this, you know, looking at their systems, you're doing what makes them tick or what you're going to, what they need. And so, of course, that's when they're going to be more responsive. So that's why that makes more sense. And that's why we should really work to include those games as as part of our therapy session uh, with those kids. And, And we know that we're more likely to get that social response during those kinds of things. So... From and a really theoretical perspective, of, that's why it works. Right. I'm sorry, well, go ahead. And if you think about it, well, I was just going to say, I mean, really, it only makes sense. If you were teaching a typically developing preschool class, would you not try and focus on things that things that most of your children were very interested in? The thing that makes this mm-hmm. a little bit unique is these kids don't have a wide variety of interests generally. They don't right. have the ability to sit and attend and listen and respond to a typical approach. I mean, we're talking about kids who who are not easy to reach, and we're saying, hey, use what gets them. And I think the important right. thing is is that you use what gets them, but you use it in such a way that you are at every turn trying to engage them socially and keep them right. with you longer. And, you know, so it's not just, oh, I know you like things that go, so I'm going to shoot balloons across the room. You know, I mean, it's not... Yeah. It's, it's the importance of what can you work into that because this kid likes things that goes, what can I do to make that therapeutic and a learning and and maybe most importantly for a lot of these kids initially, a social endeavor with you, you know. And so, but I guess it's because they have unique kind of narrowly defined interests and Mm -hmm. things that – 
intrigue them that you have to start there because if you don't, they're running out of the room. They're shoving your toy and you out the front door. They're screaming and crying because you're there to bug them again. So if you don't use what works, then you can't really, and I see that a lot. I see that a lot with therapists, not not meeting them where the kid is and just kind of going with, well, some of my kids really this like this This is how we do toy. speech therapy. Yeah, is it, yeah, this is therapy. And it's like, well, that might be therapy for Johnny, but for Joey, he couldn't care less about that. So right. I'm not saying that you don't want to work towards what Johnny may like, but in the beginning, and for some kids it's a little longer than the beginning, frankly, um, you better you better go with what gets them because not much gets them. Right. Jumping on the bed is a big activity for these kids that I use a lot. And usually I'll start out in the kids' family room or den or whatever they call it, living room, whatever mom wants to call it, the front room. But a lot of those kids, they are running to the bedroom, and that's always to me kind of – and I hate it when it happens five minutes into the session. I really – for a lot of kids, the usual pattern is we play as long as we can in the front, and then when he's run out of – attention and when I've done everything I can to keep him there and when he gets away from me and runs to the bedroom then I think okay here we go this bed is a natural trampoline for those vestibular kids a boy jumping on the bed is a big thing and they're jumping and I'm holding their little hands and again we say a little you know jump 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 or if they're counter kids you know we do the one two three jump or ready set go or whatever you want to use but again you've made that more social and you've given them a reason to look at you and usually if you're holding their hands and if you're being really fun with your voice and I usually try to pretend kind of like I'm bouncing too on the floor I've never actually jumped on a kid's bed with him I'd be afraid um, I'd break it. That would be a little me embarrassing. <laughs> but they're at your eye level too. If you're standing on the floor, right. well, right, and so. sometimes they, and I'm they don't really care. If you're, yeah. if you're helping yeah. them jump and you're engaging them with eye contact and your voice, yeah. they don't really care if you jump. Right. And if you did, you'd be way too tall. You wouldn't be able to get the good eye contact. So it works. Exactly. Just kind of bend your knees and pretend to jump. Pretend to jump, yeah. Or if a kid really needs vestibular input, I'll let them jump off the bed onto the floor, and then we'll do that again and again, make that a game. And if you're not quite sure how to do those kinds of things, a great book to read about that is called um, Giggle Game. Is it called Giggle Games or Giggle Time? I talk about this book all the time, and I, it's called one of those, and it's by Susan Odd A U D Saunders. Giggle time, yeah. Johnny just said but it. But she may call she may call them giggle games. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I think the book yeah. is giggle time. It, it, yeah, and it really teaches you how to make these things more social and get these things that kids want to do and how to how to tie movement into that. And it's a very it's a clinical read, you know. So it's not a book that I think a parent, unless your background is special education or psychology, I, you know, I'm not sure how much. A parent would really get from that. Teach me to play with you would be more appropriate for that, but for for those kinds of folks. But for a therapist, Giggle Time is a great book to teach you how to use those kinds of activities and make make those activities more social and turn those things into games. And it's for some therapists, when you read that, it's a career changer. Because if you've never played like that or thought about things in that way, or if you're a traditional sit-at-the-table flashcard kind of girl, giggle time will totally change your approach and it will give you something else to do too. So it's it's 
I can't recommend that book enough. And it's cheap, too. It's less than $20, mm-hmm. I think, or it used to be on Amazon. So that's certainly one. Any more about Vestibular Kids, Kate? I think we're good. I think we hit the big stuff. I think so, too. And the last two categories, taste. If you have a kid who's really mouthy, we talked about last, we're really oral. We talked about last week how chewy tubes can be really effective. There's a company called Chewelry that you can get some uh, commercially made safe necklaces for children to wear that they can, it's a chew toy for them to use. And again, sometimes if you give a kid something to do with his or her mouth, if he's he or she is still very oral. They can do something with their hands if their mouths are engaged. And we talked about last week that I feed these kids. We might have snack throughout the session, just two or three little cookies or two or three little crunchy things in between lots of activities to still keep them with me. And sometimes when you meet, the theory is when you meet that need, they don't feel the need to do it all the time. And so they're going to be less likely to mouth your toy um, Perhaps again, that's the theory. Uh, if you were giving them something to do, so that that's that would be your strategy for kids who um, not were still on pretty more oral. Basic level, it's kind of hard not to at least attend for a couple seconds to somebody who's giving you um, Cheetos <laughs> or cookies or gummy yeah. somethings or you know, not all kids love those things, but many of them do. So right, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. And then smell, kids. Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know that I have particular activities for those kids. When I did play group, you know, we might do some smelly activities. But more often than not with those kids, you're just um, knowing that that's a need that needs to be met. And it's not maybe not something that you're going to address behaviorally, like quit smelling that. I don't think I've ever said that to a kid who's under three. Uh, But you'll just know that that's a quirk that that particular kid's going to have. All right, so we spent the hour plus eight minutes talking about how we can use a kid's stereotypic behaviors, especially in the beginning, to make him more likely to engage with you socially. Because if you know that a kid has that tendency or has that preference or that particular sensory domain really does it for him, you want to try to use that in therapy to get better responses, to get more engagement, and to look what you said, Kate, is the most beautiful description, meet him where he is. And so that's that's the best that we can do for any of our kids in the beginning. So I hope that people got some new ideas and thought about it maybe in a different way than they have before. Sounds good. All right, so that those are our parting words for today. Next week we're going to get back with the list. We're going to talk about the one, two, three, four, five, six more things, six more key social skills that children need. We may not get to all six of those next week. I'll be blown away if we do. Oh, that's where <laughs> I'm we'll not start. planning on it. <laughs> we'll try. Well, we'll give it our best shot, but we probably will we'll try. I know. All right. Thanks, Kate. Talk Thank to you, you later. Laura. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. You too. Bye bye.